KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday. November 11th, Oceanside gets a yes to mandatory de-escalation policy for police. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. There's now new rules for public comments at County Board of Supervisor meetings. Supervisors Nathan Fletcher and Nora Vargas say behavior by some members of the public has grown worse, especially in the last few weeks. It culminated with a man hurling insults at supervisors and a racist term at public health officer Dr. Wilma Wooten. Fletcher says freedom of speech will be respected, but new rules must be put in place. Public comment will always remain a feature of local government. The ability of folks to come down and dissent and disagree will always remain a feature of local government. The new rules, which forbid loud, disruptive behavior, passed on a vote of three to one. They go into effect immediately. The Sheriff's Emergency Vehicle Operations Center opened on Wednesday in the South Bay. This state-of-the-art facility will help both cadets and current emergency responders learn important driving maneuvers to protect both themselves and the public in emergency situations. The 40-acre facility cost about $32 million to build and created nearly 300 jobs. Santa Ana winds are expected today and tomorrow. Wind speeds are expected upwards of 45 miles per hour through the region's mountains and canyons. Temperatures west of the mountains will be 10 to 20 degrees above normal. According to the National Weather Service, these conditions will heighten wildfire risks to potentially near critical levels. The Santa Ana conditions are expected to be over by Friday afternoon into Saturday. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Community members asked Oceanside's chief of police to commit to a mandatory de-escalation policy at a meeting on Tuesday night. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne has more. Oceanside's chief of police and his captains joined over 200 community members in a community meeting. The topic of discussion, the urgent need for a mandatory de-escalation policy for Oceanside Police. Oceanside's Chief of Police, Fred Armijo, was put on the spot when he was asked one question. Are you willing to change the de-escalation policy of the Oceanside Police Department? To which he answered, Let me just be as direct as you deserve. The answer is yes. Community members are happy about the change, but say this conversation is only the beginning of many. Armijo says the change will go into effect in 30 days and police officers will need to pass a written test on the new policy changes. And that was reporting from KPBS's North County reporter, Tanya Thorne. (music) 
San Diego is getting closer to a new map of city council districts. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen takes a closer look at the debate over where to draw the lines. The city's redistricting commission is homing in on two maps, one drawn by the commission chair and another drawn by activists. Among them is Jen LaBarbera, education and advocacy manager at San Diego Pride. She says the community-drawn map satisfies a number of concerns, reuniting neighborhoods that are currently split into two or more districts, and creating more districts that empower minorities. Four of our nine districts are majority people of color. If you combine Black, Asian, and Latinx voters, um, and with one of our districts being about 50-50. Commissioners opposed to that map say it dilutes the voting power of coastal communities. Commissioners hope to strike a compromise on Saturday. And that was KPBS's Metro reporter, Andrew Bowen. The county public defender's office has named the 25 most remarkable teens in San Diego. Nominations came from the community, and the awards honor accomplishments in areas that include leadership, performing arts, and social justice. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez introduces us to one of them. 17-year-old Ilan Jinich has been named one of the 25 remarkable teens in San Diego. He's a junior at San Diego Jewish Academy and the son of Mexican immigrants. He directed and produced a documentary on injustice at the Mexican border. He says communities like San Isidro suffer from higher than normal rates of asthma, and he calls it environmental racism. Whether it be pollution, things like that, that do the environment, and that's directly affecting them because of uh, this is made by the, the government. This is the third year the San Diego County Public Defender's Office has issued the teen awards. And that was reporting from KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. This week, the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer announced that they're seeking emergency approval for booster doses of their vaccine for people 18 and older. Meanwhile, the White House announced that at least 900,000 children between the ages of 5 to 11 have already gotten their first doses of the Pfizer vaccine. While the latest national milestone is encouraging, concern is growing here in California as COVID-19 hospitalizations are rising in regions with lower vaccination rates. The spike in cases ahead of the holiday season, combined with the ongoing issue of waning efficacy, continues to give residents pause about how the fight against COVID-19 is going and what lies ahead. With answers to some of our most pressing pandemic questions is Dr. Eric Topol, the director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview. Can you explain Pfizer's latest request for emergency use booster authorization from the FDA? And and how does this differ from prior steps in the authorization process? Well, the only authorization they've received so far are for people over 65 and those who have immunocompromised or comorbidity vulnerable status. Now they're trying to widen that and expanding it to everyone 18 years of age and older. Other countries have given uh, authorization as such, for example, Canada, New Zealand, many others, but the U.S. has not come down in the age criteria as low as 18, and Pfizer has data now to support that. So when should people go and seek out their booster shots, and how should they determine how to go about getting additional doses? Well, the booster shot does give added protection if you're more than five, six months out from getting the second shot. It's time to think about a booster. As you go 
older in age, you know, from 40 to 50, 60 plus, you just keep having more risk without the booster. So whether it's necessary in even younger age groups, like in the 20s and 30s, that's where it gets to be a little less clear. But I think ideally, it would be best if all people consider getting it. It's really a personal choice, particularly in young people, but not really in people who are older. And as you mentioned, uh, right now, the booster shot is available for people who have underlying conditions and comorbidities. But there are many common underlying conditions here that are often missed. Can you talk about those a bit? Right, Jane. Well, there are uh, no shortage of chronic conditions, uh, getting down to things like obesity, certainly diabetes, uh, hypertension. There are the, the list of coexisting conditions is uh, quite extensive. But even people who have no coexisting conditions, particularly as they get past age 50 and 60, they really ought to go and get a booster. Right now, what we've seen is that there's been some reluctance for people to get that. And I understand that if you've gone through a flu-like illness from your second shot, who wants to get a third one? But there's a lot of protection, and it's possible that that third shot could take us a long ways, not just another six months. So I really, I think we should encourage these. What does data show in terms of how well boosters protect versus severe disease across age groups? Hospitalizations and severe disease, and almost all the data we have comes from Israel. And there they define severe disease as hospitalization or clear-cut signs that there's uh, oxygen desaturation in the lungs, that is a, a burgeoning pneumonia, you know, pretty strict criteria. But if you look at the data that's been published now from Israel, hospitalizations and deaths are suppressed with the booster shot. The deaths primarily occur in people who are age 70 and older, but no one wants to go in the hospital with COVID, particularly if you've already had two vaccine shots. So boosters are smart. Uh, and I really think uh, we should be using them more liberally and accepting them uh, broadly. As we mentioned earlier, the White House is set to announce today that 900,000 children aged 5 to 11 have received their first dose. Um, are you encouraged by that number? Yes, it's a good start. One million down and uh, 27 million to go. That's how many children ages 5 to 11 there are in the United States. We'll never get to 28 million, but it sure would help a lot to get control of the pandemic, to get these kids protected, not just from themselves, but other kids and teachers and staff in schools and adults, but also protecting kids from long COVID, protecting them from, you know, the whole pandemic duration, no less uh, the issues of getting rid of masks in school and all the things of signs of progress. So we really want to get these kids uh, vaccinated. And interestingly, the paper that uh, came out yesterday in the New England Journal was really impressive. 91% protection with this low dose of the Pfizer vaccine, just 10 micrograms, which uh, was accompanied by just remarkable safety data. So I think this is a really great uh, green light to getting children vaccinated. The safety was a concern in teens, but the dose has been lower to a third, and hopefully we won't see any significant side effects in children as we go forward, and, and time will tell about that. But the trial looked really uh, very solid. Do you think the impact that COVID can have on children was at all trivialized 
during efforts to get them back into the classroom? Well, yes. I mean, I think the idea that schools were closed for such a long period of time and there were evidence in other countries that they were able to stay open. You know, we've had significant issues here in the U.S. and certainly in in California. We haven't had rapid tests on a daily or frequent basis to help to know whether children and staff and teachers were okay to go in that day, which would be ideal. We still don't have them in nearly all schools. That would really help. But, you know, I think if we can get the vaccination rates really high, we can get schools to be one of the safest places there are. Do you think we will eventually see a plateau in vaccination rates among children due to hesitancy, as we've seen with other groups? That is a problem. You know, when you have adults that won't get vaccinated, it sure is unlikely they're going to have their children get vaccinated. So we haven't gotten that problem resolved in adults. And that's a serious matter in this country that's setting us up for trouble. We only have 58% of the population vaccinated. Even if we got all the children vaccinated, which is unlikely, we're still left way behind where we need to be to get uh, this pandemic in our rearview mirror. And what do you make of the recent increase in hospitalizations here in California? Well, we have a few things going on at once. You know, I've already mentioned our vaccination rate is inadequate. It's less in California than in many other states, uh, particularly in New England. And it's just above the national average, but it's just not enough. So those people who are winding up in the hospital are much more likely to be the unvaccinated. But some are vaccinated who had this waning immunity, and they would have been much better off if they'd gotten the booster shot. Then you have the people who have relaxed uh, the idea, the notion that the pandemic is over. It couldn't be more wrong. So these are the major factors that are contributing to the problem. And I think we're still on the upswing, unfortunately, in California and San Diego, because we don't have enough recognition of these three cardinal issues that are ongoing. There are places in the world where COVID is currently surging, like Eastern Europe, for example. What's driving the surge there? And could the U.S. see the same as holidays and winter approach? Eastern and Central Europe have very low vaccination rates. But what's even more concerning than the Eastern Central Europe's status is that in Western Europe, almost every country has considerably higher vaccination rates and more recent vaccination than the U.S. So they have less evidence of waning and higher people protected. And we are seeing really high rates of COVID in those countries. Countries like Belgium, Austria, Ireland, Germany, Denmark, Norway. I mean, the list goes on. That's a horrible sign because these countries are better off than we are. So we should have a wake-up call that we are in for trouble uh, because we're lower vaccinated. We have more waning with people reluctant to get boosters. We have been thinking that, you know, the mask and mitigation is unnecessary when in fact it's actually quite necessary to get through this. So we're not taking heat again, and that's a problem. And that was Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. coming up on the podcast, for this Veterans Day, we're bringing you stories of American veterans from American veterans. We'll have more on that next, just after the break.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This Veterans Day, we bring you the story of an American veteran. It's part of a series of veteran stories from the American home front. Army Specialist Shoshana Johnson was traveling in a convoy in Iraq in 2003 when her vehicle was attacked. Iraqi forces killed 11 soldiers in her company and captured six, including Johnson. She was held for 22 days, becoming the first black female prisoner of war in American history. Here's her story, told in her own voice. There's a vehicle, a civilian vehicle that pulls in front of us. I think it was a dump truck or a tow truck or something. And we ended up going to the side of the road. And I jump out the vehicle. Here comes um, Saren Riley. Hernandez comes flying out the vehicle. And we go underneath the vehicle to take cover and return fire. I think it's not even a minute underneath the vehicle. I get shot, both my legs. Then Hernandez gets hit in the arm. Saren Riley says his weapon is jammed, and I hand him mine. And I remember I gave it to him flat down, which is totally wrong. It gets dirt in the mechanism. And of course, it wouldn't fire after that. Next thing you know, Sergeant Riley says, you know, we're going to have to surrender. As part of the Geneva Convention, you're supposed to separate the male from the females. But as the only female, I'm, a, I'm alone most of the time, and it's hard. Um, the only human contact you have is, you know, my guards or the doctor would come in to look at my leg. Sitting there alone, having to think about everything. I went through everything I had ever done wrong in my life <laughs> and apologized to God. <laughs> um, and, you know, thought about my daughter and God willing, if I got to go home, what would I do with myself? And I thought of those who... I knew we're dead and wondered about the rest of them. They started moving us from prisons to homes, and that's very scary because the military was checking prisons. You can't go and check every house in a city. So it would be getting harder to find us, and the dread starts setting in. I remember the night before, we, they had given us this, this really cool meal with soda and chocolate, and I was thinking it's, it's the last meal. They're going to kill us. This is your last, you know. But nope, the Marines came to the rescue on Palm Sunday. I thought I was fine. And I kept saying it, I'm fine, I'm fine. My aunt, my family said, no, you're not. No, you're not. I was different. They expect you to come home the way you left. And that's not possible. You're not the same person. My parents were like, your daughter comes to us talking about mommy cries all the time and stuff. So they guilted me <laughs> into being more diligent about my care. I get excellent care, and, and I still have issues. I've been hospitalized three times. In El Paso, they keep a military wing. We are all, like, housed together and get our treatment together and so forth. And I think that does more for me than the actual therapy and the doctors is that structure of that military life back. That really helps more than anything because they understand like nobody else. 
I wouldn't change going in the military, being a soldier for anything in the world. The only thing I would change is that day. If I could go back and unring that bell and have all of us come home, that's the one thing I would change. That's Shoshana Johnson, recorded by Insignia Films for GBH Boston. You can hear more on the PBS series American Veteran and the podcast American Veteran Unforgettable Stories. This excerpt was produced by the American Homefront Project. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.